Welcome to another Scotland's Choice podcast with me, Drew Hendry. In this episode, recorded around Westminster, I'm speaking with MPs Alan Brown, Stuart Hosey and Ben Leake. We're talking about pensions and broken promises, the reheated anti-independence arguments, the need for a campaign of principle and vision over independence and the Westminster boundary changes. Hi, I'm Alan Brown, MP for Commandant Loudon, pension spokesperson for the SNP. So yes, I've just taken part in a debate about trying to force the UK government to hold their promise to reinstate the triple lock for pensions. And what that means in reality, because inflation is so high, they need to uprate pensions by 10% or else it's a further cut to people's pensions. And if we look back to 2014, the promises that were made be better together, that we had to vote no and be part of the UK to protect Scottish pensions, and frankly, that was a myth. I actually got pulled up in the chamber because I, I said that Gordon Brown was lying and they spoke about how good the UK welfare state was and the associated uh, benefits that come with that. The reality is, with the money budget that the Tories did there in September, they nearly crashed private pension ports, so that proves mm. they, they can't be trusted. And also, they already broke the triple lock last year, so that cost, that's costing pensioners £500 per year. It's actually taken £30 billion worth of total money out of pensioners' pockets over the next few years. And, and every time you ask the Tory front bench about protecting the triple lock for pensioners, there's a different response, isn't there? There's been umpteen new turns. It's <laughs> been new turn after new turn. Now, certainly the current Prime Minister, mm -hmm. the third in three months, but the current Prime Minister, when he was Chancellor, he pledged to reinstate the triple lock. So I'd like to think he would come good in that. But the other point I've made... Even if they reinstate the triple lock, all they're doing is keeping pensions at a steady state, mm. as it were. It's hardly something to get excited about when you actually do the analysis. You know, And they're still living with the cut from last year. They're still living with the cut from last mm. year. So all we're doing is, as I say, that steady state. But it's a steady state while the cost of energy is through the roof. Mm -hmm. We don't know what support they're giving for energy mm -hmm. um, in the future uh, post-April. So there's still a lot of concerns for people. And that's why I was saying it, it's hardly something to get excited about. And, and, and no guarantee has been given at any point during these debates or questions, Prime Minister's questions, no guarantee has been laid down there. And, uh, you know, when you listen to the Tory response today, it's all about, oh, wait and see. You know, this is a very simple manifesto promise, that, well, isn't it? Is it something they should just be honouring? You're absolutely right. They're trying to make out it would be somehow irresponsible to do an announcement ahead of the budget. Mm. But it's not much of an announcement to say we're hold, we're actually reinstating our manifesto pledge and we're abiding by some of the U-turns we've already made. Mm. Uh, you know, that it's actually, it would put them in the front foot instead of this, let's wait and see, because to do otherwise is somehow wrong. Mm. Yeah, and, and when we look at pensions in the UK, um, you know, we're talking about maintaining the triple lock of promise that was made, maintaining you know, pace with inflation, which we know is not going to happen because I've already suffered a, a dunt in that from the triple lock being broken. Um, it, it, it's just not a good place to start, is it, when you look at the pension rates in the UK compared to other nations? No, it's not a good place to start. When you when you do comparisons with OECD countries, the UK spends way less as a proportion of GDP compared to other countries. Um, if you look at other countries that pay a flat rate the way the UK does, such, such as... Uh, Ireland, Netherlands, Denmark, the flat rate you get in the UK mm -hmm. is less yeah. than these three countries. Mm -hmm. And then when you look at other comparisons with Northwest 
uh, European countries. The UK sits bottom out of 14 countries. So the UK consistently fails in these comparison tests. And even there's one other test that can be done. It's called replacement rates, which is comparing earnings, uh, past earnings to current pension rates. And even then, the UK is in the bottom half of the table. So there's no measure that says the UK pension is anywhere good. And that's something else you need to remember. When next time better together is telling us how good the UK <laughs> pension is, yeah. as as I say, it's a lie, and people need to be held to account for and that. And you're talking, you know, making that comparison just now, and many of those nations that are way above the UK, um, and of course by default Scotland, um, are you know smaller, uh, you know, or or similar sized nations to Scotland without the kind of natural wealth and resources that we've got. Uh, absolutely. It's uh, the small independent Scandinavian states are way, way ahead of the, And Ireland. And Ireland, of course, <laughs> are, are way ahead of, <laughs> yeah, the, yeah. of the UK in this. Mm -hmm. And it's actually outrageous that the UK has got the 12th highest rate of pension poverty out of 35 countries. Yeah. You know, it, it's, it's ridiculous in an energy rich country. And you touched on something earlier when you were talking about why this is so important in, in, at this particular time. Um, because you were making a point about the fact that people are facing enormous costs uh, just now, and none more so than energy. When you think about, you know, pensioners, they're usually the first ones to try and cut down on the heating and so forth to save a, a, a wee bit of money. And that's particularly dangerous if you're an older person. But, but the pressures on household budgets now um, are just enormous, aren't they? Absolutely correct. Huge pressure on household budgets. And I think along with the pressures, so people are wondering what they can cut back mm. on in terms of energy usage, what they, how they can reduce um, their shopping bills. But equally alongside this is just this continued uncertainty. Mm. They don't know what future income is going to be like. Yeah. They don't know what the future energy bill increase mm. are going to be like. And the government's not even telling us what further support they're going to bring forward. Because even the energy price guarantee, as they call it, um, doesn't last for a year as it was originally supposed to do, or two years, as it should, I should say, as it was supposed to do. It's only until uh, the beginning of next year, and then you, they're, uh, they're again going to uh, kind of review this. So there's no certainty for people. Absolutely people, no people, certainty. And what we're going to see in January, Ofgem will be required to report in January what they think the the cap's going to be under the standard variable tar tariff mm -hmm. to kick in in April. So come January, we're going to get information and what they think bills are going to increase to in April, mm -hmm. and we're not going, probably not going to hear anything from the government what's mm -hmm. going to happen to help people mitigate that. So post-Christmas, going to be a real concerns for people. And average bills are, even with that uh, temporary measure in place, are going to be much higher, aren't they? Much higher and much higher. In, in Scotland, uh, an average house is estimated to be in the equivalent of £3,300 mm -hmm. per year mm -hmm. versus what they call the energy guarantee of 2500 mm -hmm. Rural Scotland can see bills of over £4,000. And then, as you pointed out in today's day, those off the gas grid are facing enormous costs and they're not they're getting a measly £100 to mitigate it. Indeed, yeah. it's um, it, You said it's almost insulting uh, to offer that. And I know speaking to constituents, that's exactly what they're saying to me. It's uh, it, it's it, it's not going to even touch the sides. You've got five hundred pounds for a minimum delivery of oil or uh, LPG. No, that's right. Mm -hmm. And and the government doesn't seem to understand this five hundred pounds minimum delivery. Mm -hmm. And actually, that's all to do with standards and measurements. So mm -hmm. companies aren't that actually can't 
to, to comply with trading standards. Mm. They can't do less than that, that equivalent £500 delivery. And it, mm -hmm. It's a basic concept this government doesn't understand. So again, that's you say that the £100 going nowhere. And, and just briefly, because we'll be talking to Ben Lake about uh, this in a wee bit more detail. The, this is also a day where they've, um, they've announced the boundary changes for Scotland. Watch your thoughts about the fact that they're taking two seats away from Scotland, they're taking eight seats away from Wales, putting 10 seats into England. What do you think that says to people about the state of democracy in the UK? I think it says it all about A, the state of democracy, and B, the Tories thirst for power in terms of manipulating data and assign, assigning that to the boundaries, the respective boundary commissions to work with that, because we all know it's about the Tories trying to gain an advantage in, in the way they set the political formula. You'll know more than me, but the changes they're making some of these big rural seats in Scotland are just outrageous, mm -hmm. creating constituencies that it's almost impossible for an MP to be able to get round about and see their constituents. Mm -hmm. And that in itself is bad for democracy mm -hmm. because democracy is all about the access to your elected representatives. When you, you mentioned, since you mentioned it, it's given me the opportunity to talk about my constituency and others in the Highlands, which have just been absolutely savaged by this proposal, you'll be found Inverness cut in half, a bit of it, uh, you know, sealed off with uh, Murray and uh, and Nairn and uh, a bit of Badenoch and Strasbay and, uh, you know, the rest of it uh, clumped together with Sky. It, you know, in some instances, you're looking at a five-hour trip just to get from one hour, uh, one end, in good weather, from one end of the constituency to another. Inverness Airport, not in the Inverness con constituency. It's just um, a nonsense. And it, it shows a kind of disrespect that I think is... That underlines the, the cost of Westminster that we've got just now because there is no attention to the detailed needs of people um, in the Highlands. There is no attention to what is the right way to set this up. This is purely a numbers exercise for this parliament, isn't it? Uh, absolutely. And creating the same number of voters per constituency actually is also illogical. As you rightly say, there's, there's a kind of needs basis. It's all about these voters being able to get contact and representation so if they're sp spread out over such a big area it's, it's bad for everything it's bad for democracy and this is a problem when you set these parameters at the boundary commission everything's a numbers game and logic goes out the window community connectivity goes out the window and historic community ties get thrown out the window mm -hmm. because it's all about some accounting formula mm -hmm. and that is no way to do democracy. And, and you have to say, you know, to people, look at what Westminster is doing. Look, all of those things, things we've been talking about with, you know, having a fight to protect the triple lock, you know, the, uh, the what they've done with taking £20 a week away from people with universal credit, what they're not doing over the energy crisis and what they're doing over the boundaries. You know, you look at what they're doing to people, communities, families, this place is broken and really it, it underlines a case that really to get the kind of representation, the kind of decisions that we need, the kind of society that we want to live in, we have to be an independent country. Absolutely. A normal independent country. A normal independent country that makes decisions mm. for itself on behalf of the people. And you know what? In a normal independent country, also if the government doesn't deliver on its pledges, the people and the voters can vote for a change of government. We don't ever get the chance to actually dictate what government we get at Westminster, so we're left with remind them me, making decisions. Yeah, remind me how long it is since we voted for the Tories in Scotland to be in government. 
1955. I think you have to be 89 years old to remember uh, voting in that election. And, and even the thing is that Scotland voted for a Labour government during the Blair years and we got a Labour government, but mm -hmm. we only got a Labour government because England voted ah, for Labour. Mm -hmm. The Scottish votes made no difference mm -hmm. to the government we got. It just so happened that it aligned with the way people in England were voting. So we, it's only by fluke or coincidence that we get a government we vote for at Westminster, and that's what we need to remember as well. And one other point I made in the debate is, for example, pension poverty. It's a lower rate in Scotland than it is in the rest of the UK. But that's a small measure. That's just us mitigating the effects of Westminster. Mm. We want to do much better than just being marginally better than the rest of the UK. We want to do as well as these small independent countries that the Scottish government is using as comparators because that's the yardstick of success. It's a country that's more equal, a country that's more fairer. And the only way you can get that is with these normal powers of independence. Uh, Stuart Hosey, MP for Dundee East. I think last week's SNP-led debate on independence was really important, partly to basically dismantle some of the nonsense we did hear from our unionist opponents, but also to remind ourselves what we did right and what we could have done better from 2014. And I think if we keep that in the front of our minds just now, as the campaign crystallises for the independence referendum, hopefully next, uh, next uh, autumn, then I think that'll hold us in good stead. And, you know, you've, we've heard from uh, Alan Brown a few minutes ago talking about um, the, the fact that, you know, the decisions taken here at Westminster are not ta ever taken with Scotland's interests at heart. He was, you know, you know, reflecting on things like the boundary changes. But like, say, mainly talking about today about the pensions, pensions triple lock, you know, there are a lot of people in Scotland who, you know, voted no in 2014. Um, based on a, a set of promises uh, that, you know, these things would be protected or at least Scotland would be able to do them. Um, you know, what, what's your, your your message on that now? I think that's actually going to be a key message in the referendum. Uh, they said your pension would only be safe in the UK. Yeah. The pensions are under threat. And even if they protect the triple lock this time, we know it's under threat. Mm. Uh, they said benefits would fall in value. Benefits have fallen massively in mm. value, particularly in real terms, as part of the union. They told us we'd only stay in Europe if we were mm. part of the UK. We've been ripped out of Europe. Mm. Uh, I did go through a list of more of these things recently, and there's not a single substantial promise made by the Better Together, by the No campaign in 2014 that remains true mm. today. What that does? that undermines every single thing they're going to say in the run-up to next year. And, and of course, you know, one of those uh, the, those big points they're trying to, ha you know, say now is that, you know, you won't be able to get into the European Union because you're not going to commit to the Euro and, uh, you know, and they're throwing up all this stuff. It's, it, Project Fear is kind of rearing its head again. We, we just want to be clear on, uh, on this. That there's a technical requirement to commit to Euro, but we know there are countries um, who haven't uh, implemented that. Sweden's one, Romania uh, is another. There's there's many countries, I think there's eight across the EU that, that haven't committed. That's exactly right. There are, I think, eight countries who have said yes, that when the time is right, there's absolutely no pressure whatsoever. And it doesn't stop them getting in, does oh, it? absolutely doesn't stop them at all. Mm. And doing very well out of it. Mm -hmm. um, there's absolutely no reason whatsoever uh, why Scotland would be forced to take the euro quickly, mm -hmm. if at all. Mm -hmm. uh, 
once we rejoin the European Union. But your question was predicated on what our opponents will do next. Mm -hmm. And it's Project Fear. It's Project Fear mm -hmm. 2. The problem they've got, and I'm happy to reiterate this, not a single one of the substantial promises or threats they made last time now holds water. So what are they left with? Mm -hmm. They'll be scrambling around the fringes looking for a scare story here or a scare story then. Mm -hmm. Better to just accept Scottish democracy, let us have the referendum, vote for independence and move on. And, and what do you think of the proposition that, you know, for independence, you know, we've got to tell everybody what's going to happen for years to come on the economy and be absolutely detailed about it. When in this place, we see week by week, the absolute chaotic shambles that they can't even forecast the week ahead in this place at the moment. Because as we saw with the pensions debate, they won't even commit to the triple lock because they're saying, oh, wait for another week. Is that, um, is that a legitimate uh, you know, comparison to make? I, I think you're absolutely right. And this happened again in 2014. I remember being on one television programme and being asked to forecast some macroeconomic numbers for decades in the future. I said to my Labour opponent who was on the programme with me, what will the state pension be next year? Mm -hmm. No answer was forthcoming. You're absolutely right. They can't tell us what's happening next week. They can't tell us what's happening next year. And that's why I said in my speech in the debate last week, while we must absolutely answer the specific questions that members of the public put to us, we need to win this on the basis of principle and vision rather than getting bogged down in detail and bogged down in unionist whataboutery. Mm -hmm. and, and of course, you know, some of the economic prospectus, we, we actually see the damage that's being done by decisions made at Westminster over Brexit in real terms and our trade figures and the fact that we've, you know, we've got, uh, you know, a work, workforce shortage that's really hampering us. And yet the message from Labour, which is supposedly the alternative down here, going to be the, the great hope for us in the future, is actually not any different uh, from what we hear in the Tory benches. The Labour message, particularly on Scotland, but also on the UK economy, is almost identical uh, to the Tories. That is absolutely correct. And I think that will end up playing badly for them if and when there's another UK election. Because, you know, what's the difference between the real Tories and Tory light? Mm -hmm. So I think you're absolutely uh, right about it. And, and we've seen comments on immigration. You know, we've heard Keir Starmer saying that we, you know, almost re repeating the Gordon Brown trope about uh, British jobs for British workers. I mean, he's more or less said that when he says we don't ha need to have any immigration to fill, or he, he's against the idea of filling, uh, you know, vacancies, for example, in the NHS, you with know, I, I, people I, from elsewhere. I hope he doesn't believe that. I hope it's just something some daft focus group has said. But let me be blunt, a Labour anti-immigration mug, a Labour break, make Brexit work slogan, a Labour, you know, de-staff the NHS by denying foreign people the right to work there. This is pretty bad stuff. It's rubbish politics, it's rubbish for healthcare. I think this is gonna play really, really badly for them. And, and coming back to one other thing I touched on very briefly earlier, because I said we've been talking about this. It, the, the, we've had the Boundary Commission uh, publish its latest uh, proposals. We know these are more or less gonna go through. There is a consultation, but it's not really gonna affect uh, much. And you know, when you look at some of these constituencies, particularly, and I, I've already you know, spoken a wee bit length about my own, 
uh, constituency and how the Highlands are being, you know, gerrymandered and affected uh, by this. But when you look at some of the sizes, they really don't take into account the needs of uh, people in Scotland in terms of um, democratic representation, do they? Oh, it's an absolute joke. I mean, that kind of Western Highland seat is ridiculously big. The one which will take in Kate Ness and Sutherland, mm. ridiculously big. Mm -hmm. Coming further south, the, the one that will gather huge bits in and around Murray, ridiculously big. The Argyle, Street, uh, Argyle seat is, you know, to use the old euphemism, probably the size of Belgium. It, <laughs> it is just ridiculous. Yeah. Even once you get close to the central belt, the, mm -hmm. the, the old Angus seat is now North Tayside. It runs from the Aberdeenshire boundary down to Highland Perthshire. Some of this is absolutely crazy. You know, there does come a time when the UK Parliament, when any Parliament needs to say, we need a critical mass of people from every part of the country. Mm -hmm. And therefore, if one or two seats are slightly smaller in population terms mm -hmm. than some others, then that's just something the UK should suck on. Yeah, and we're just about to hear from Ben Lake. This isn't a uniquely Scottish problem, in fact, you could argue that Wales is being treated even uh, more badly, but but it's just that it's bad for democracy, as most things have been in, in recent years in this place, to see these kinds of decisions being taken just on numbers rather than needs of the, the, the nations of the UK or indeed the communities within them. Yeah, I mean, look, if you're being cynical, this gives the Tories 10 more seats in England. It takes two away from Scotland. I mean, if I was being partisan, it doesn't think, I don't think it's going to affect the SNP in terms of representation, but that's not the point. Wales loses eight seats. Mm. There'll come a time when there'll barely be a Welsh voice in this UK Parliament. Mm. That isn't a union. Mm. It's not a union in any meaningful sense. And as I say, I think the UK need to say, OK, let's do our best to have equally sized constituencies, but let's recognise cultural and great geographic difference and if one or two seats are a wee bit smaller in population terms, you know, it actually doesn't matter. But they're not going to do that. No, of course they're not. This is all about power. Power for England and power for the Tory party. Well, I'm Ben Lake and I represent uh, Ceredigion in his current form. And uh, one of the big consequences of the boundary reform for us it means that Ceredigion uh, enlarges quite a bit. Uh, it gains around 20 or 1,000 people mm -hmm. in terms of electorate. Mm -hmm. And in terms of its length, it adds about 25, 50 miles, mm -hmm. um, making the overall constituency about 90 odd miles from one end to the other. Mm -hmm. um, so my you know, impressions really is that this is the, the move to a universal sort of single UK-wide electoral quarter is disastrous mm -hmm. uh, for the nations of the UK. It's not taking into account the, the, the specific aspects of constituencies like yours or indeed uh, mine, where we've seen Highland just chopped to, to yeah. bits and... Uh, you know, the, the Highlands are just all over the place in terms of it. But it must be a very similar experience for people in your constituency. It's, it's chaos, absolute mm. chaos. The, it was difficult enough anyway um, with 40 MPs to ensure that all the constituencies abided mm. uh, by some form of yep. sort of recognised community basis. But reducing it down to 32 means that you are making new seats that have, mm -hmm. you know, have communities that have nothing in common with each other. Mm -hmm. You know, take mine, for example. Uh, the communities down in Fishguard in Pembrokeshire would be in the same seat as communities in Aberystwyth in the north. Mm -hmm. um, they've never really had anything in common. Mm -hmm. um, seldom would people from Aberystwyth go to Fishcar and vice versa, because mm -hmm. the road infrastructure is just non-existent, really. Mm -hmm. um, so you're forcing now uh, electoral mem uh, members of parliament uh, from Wales to try and 
juggle these hats, um, you know, crossing different local authority boundaries, health boards, mm. police forces and some uh, examples. Um, it's just chaos. And on top of that, as you know, Drew, the rurality element. Mm -hmm. um, they've decided in this new act to just concentrate on the electoral quota, mm -hmm. not taking into any account uh, the specifics of the areas, especially how the added challenges you have in a rural area. You know, mm -hmm. if I was to represent a, a city centre seat, for example, mm -hmm. yes, it has its problems, it has its workload, but at least I can host maybe two or three different surgeries and cover everybody. And, and there's no consideration of the travelling distances involved is that for people as well, you know, for constituents to actually go and see their MP or whatever, uh, you know, there is no uh, consideration there. But, you, but you've also got, I think you touched on it just now, very, very different communities uh, yeah. with very, very different uh, aspects and needs and uh, uh, trying to be uh, serviced under this you know, block that they've put together purely on uh, numbers. Yeah, and it makes no sense. I mean, in, in practical terms, uh, I, whoever represents the new Caradigion seat, and I hope I will be there, but if I am re-elected, I then have the headache of, right, okay, surgeries. Because already we can't really go lower than about three or four different locations for surgeries. Because mm -hmm. you don't want to be asking people in an area where there are no bus services to be mm -hmm. traveling in their cars, you know, 20, 30 miles to see you you add another, you know, 50 odd square miles mm. to the seat. You're going to have to think about not only more surgeries, but also two offices, because practically speaking, you know, you can't have your staff traveling, uh, you know, dozens of miles every day just to kind of go back and forth. So there'll be no consideration of that, of course, in the public discourse. Mm. You know, when it comes out to office costs, I think rural MPs are going to be punished mm. because they'll be trying to cater for a service there are no economies of scale mm -hmm. in rural areas for anything. Yeah. Um, but that, that won't be covered in, in the narrative. And I fear that you know, rural MPs are going to be in for a bit of a, a kicking on that front. Now, now you, you were um, on the committees as this went through uh, Parliament on there. Are you concerned from a perspective of it's already quite difficult to make sure Wales's voice, and we experienced mm -hmm. it here with Scotland's voice being heard in Westminster. Are you concerned with that reduction in MPs and the increase in... English MPs, that that voice is going to be further diminished. I do. And I think um, more than just the reduction of Welsh MPs, I think what we've, we're seeing now is a um, solidification of the kind of London-centric model uh, for the economy that the UK government has basically propagated for dozens, if not hundreds of years now. Um, and it's a vicious cycle because now what they say is wherever has the greatest population growth, mm. In future reviews, we'll also see an uptake, an uplift to their numbers. Mm -hmm. So there's a lovely saying in Welsh, you're pant at a door, you know, the water flows down the hill. Mm -hmm. So there's no way now in terms of economic policy and political power to reverse this change, really, unless we have significant constitutional changes and independence. Because let's just take, for example, now, London is seeing population growth. It's getting, I think, an extra five or so MPs in the new review. Um, to what it was already a large grouping. If you then take the South East together, that is the predominant grouping in Parliament. Now, self-interest would have it that that voting bloc is always going to favour policies that will further advance the cause of the London economy. We already know per capita spending, London is the largest region or nation in the UK in terms of per capita spending. More than Scotland, more than Wales, more than Northern Ireland. This is only going to kind of further uh, exacerbate inequalities uh, between the different economies of the UK. Um, and with increased economic and investment, you're going to have more people drawn to London. And so then the political representation will further increase. 
Because at the end of the day, the population of Wales increased since the last boundary review, but we lose eight seats because we didn't grow as fast as England. And that is, in my opinion, a travesty that's makes it even clearer that if we want a government that truly represents our interests, it has to be based in Wales, it has to be independent Wales. My thanks to MPs Alan Brown, Stuart Hosey and Ben Lake for taking part. And thanks to you for listening. You can find other episodes of Scotland's Choice at scotlandschoice.scot. 